Now, I'm sure that most of you are familiar with the idea of FOMO. Help me out. What does FOMO stand for? Fear of missing out. So, time of honesty, who here suffers from FOMO? All right. Who here has a spouse that suffers from FOMO? <laughs> All right. Okay. This is the idea that you are so afraid of missing out that you just feel so compelled. Doesn't matter how tired you are, how depleted you are, you say yes to everything. Now, what makes it especially difficult for people who suffer from FOMO is when there are two awesome events on the same day. And so how do I say yes to both events? All right, so some of you try and split it 50-50. I'll go here and then I'll go there. Or you're at this event, but you're so thinking about what you're missing out at this event that you're not fully present for this event, right? This is something that I think many of us experience. Now, for those of you who know me, I'm actually, I can be quite an introvert. And so I don't know if I really suffer from FOMO in that sense of the word, but I'll tell you what does give me FOMO. Recently on my social media page, I've seen a couple of big fat trouts coming out of some nice dams in the Camburg or some beautiful slabs of fish coming out of the wild coast waters. And then, yes, I absolutely have FOMO. And also for those of you who didn't partake in HPC, I hope that, that the Lord gives you FOMO so that next year you are going to be involved. But just to take a bit of a serious turn, we've started a series called Unstoppable, which is a series on the unstoppable work and person on the Holy Spirit's. And for the last few weeks, we've actually been looking at how the story of the Spirit grows and develops in the Old Testament. And we've seen how the Spirit was there in creation, turning chaos into order, bringing light and life out of darkness. And how the Spirit continued doing that, leading Israel, being with God's people, anointing people with power so that the Spirit would do what the Spirit does, but through people. And then we saw at every major point in God's story, God's presence was there so powerfully, so often with wind and with fire. And how that spirit continued into this present age, the age of the church, and then this age will continue, well, at least the sense of the spirit being with God's people will continue forever, which is why the series is called Unstoppable. Last week, we also looked at, I mean, we've just spent the beautiful time worshiping Jesus for what He's done and for who He is. And last week was a message where we looked at how every single strand of the story concerning the spirits comes beautifully and powerfully together in the person of Jesus. And so He is the one to whom we go to receive the spirits. And so here's where my FOMO comes in. Today, we're going to go into some parts of the conversation regarding the Holy Spirit where there is some debates. And while certain people on certain issues may see some things slightly differently, I just want to let you know on the big things, on the major issues, there is unanimity. All right, we believe the same things about who the Spirit is. 
but there are some different ways of seeing things. And while today I'm going to propose a way of seeing things, I want to tell you where my FOMO lies. My FOMO doesn't lie with regards to am I wrong or am I right? And while we are going to seek to be as responsible as possible with regards to God's Word, my greatest FOMO is not about was I technically correct in today's sermon while I have strived to do that. My greatest FOMO is that we sit here, we hear a great message, and we go away without receiving what God wants to give us. And we go and we critique Steve's sermon or another person's sermon, and we, we give it a mental mark out of 10. We get back to the routine of life where our entire world is defined by these eyes instead of these eyes. And where we are not defined by who God is and the presence that He so desperately wants to pour out among us. And I'm so, man, this is weighing so heavily on my heart that we go through this series unchanged. We've already seen the God who wants to Bless us with His presence in a powerful way. That is the prayer for this year. Remember at the beginning of the year, we said that the word that the Lord gave us on our hearts as leaders is the word ignite. That God would ignite a new sense of His presence and His love, that it becomes real to us, not just a theory. And so church, while we are going to come to God's word, we want to increasingly move into doing life with, the, with God and with the life of God pumping through our veins. And so I really pray with everything that is in me that God is stirring something in our hearts, a desire, a thirst, a hunger for more of Him and for more of His presence. Now, as we've looked at a number of these themes concerning the Holy Spirit, that God so wants to bless us with the greater sense of His presence, the big question is, okay, but how? How does God do this? And how do we position ourselves before God in this? Because if God's heart is not just to be with us, but in us, if God's heart is not just for us to see His power, but to be empowered, if God's heart for us is not simply to be associated with Jesus, but filled with the spirits of Jesus, how? And this is where we get to some of this debate. And when we get to areas like this, so in my mind's eye, I often see this like the sort of stereotypical high school playground or cafeteria scene that we see in the movies. We're on one side of the jocks and that side are the hipsters and then that side's kind of the, the cheerleading girls and that side's the academic people. And for the most part, they kind of keep their own space. But then every now and again, a fight breaks out. Unnecessarily, I think. And so there are different camps, for want of a better term, that may see things differently. And every now and again, a bit of a fight breaks out. And I really pray that that is not what happens today. But today's conversation is one of those conversations that maybe we can come with preloaded assumptions that can maybe get us a little bit frustrated. And so I want to try and navigate this in as helpful a way as possible. You see, the issue is how we receive the spirits. And I want us to think about this in two categories, at the beginning of our walk of faith 
And as we continue our walk of faith, what does receiving the Spirit look like here? And what does the Spirit look like here? And is it the same? Is it different? And that is really what is at issue to today, which now again takes me back to my FOMO. At the end of the day, while I am going to propose a way of thinking about this, I hope that underneath all of it is not bickering about terminology, but coming to God with a thirst and a hunger. And that even if we do see things slightly differently, that we can be united on the sense that we want more of God in our midst. We want more of God in our lives. We want to know Him better in as intimate a way as is possible. And that's what today is about. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the language that the Scripture uses to describe this kind of interaction between us and God. And we're going to start off at the beginning of the story. What is some of the language around the beginning of our walk of faith? And so I'm going to run through a number of verses. And if you want to jot down the verses, you can just have them there and go read them for yourself. But we're going to start off here, Ephesians 1 verses 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. Okay, so this is describing the beginning of our walk in faith. When I believed, because I heard the message of truth, the gospel of my salvation, I was included in Christ. It's this moment. What happens here, when you believed, you were marked in Him, in Christ, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The picture here is, it's not something that we do very often these days, but maybe you've seen it in the storybooks or the movies. All right, when there's a very important document that a king or someone else in authority wants to make sure that no one else reads. And so they seal that document with the blob of wet wax, and then they take their seal, a sign, just it's almost like their signature, and they imprint that onto the wax. That is the picture in mind that Paul is describing here. And so really what is going on here, as we come to faith in Christ, God seals us with the Holy Spirit. This is God's way of saying, mine. And once God says of someone, mine, that is who we are. That is our identity. We are His. He is jealous over us. We will always be His. And the way He demonstrates His mark on us is the seal of God's presence. Now, you and I can't always see with these eyes that seal, but the spiritual powers can. And this is who we are. We are sealed with God's spirits, and it's His way of saying, Mine. Let's look at another verse. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, Paul isn't primarily thinking about the actual words. I mean, you can train a parrot to say the word Jesus is Lord. And it doesn't mean they're filled with the spirits. What is going on here is someone who sees Jesus as Lord recognizes Jesus as Lord and surrenders to Jesus as Lord. That is what it means to repent and to believe, according to the previous verse. But 
I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but this doesn't come naturally to us. Just look around us. Look how hard the world is fighting against the idea that Jesus is Lord. And so what we see right from our first nanosecond of faith is that the Spirit is at work in us. The Spirit is at work helping me see Jesus as Lord, helping me recognize Jesus as Lord, and therefore helping me surrender to Jesus as Lord. So right from the first moment, in fact, there are other verses that just show how the Spirit's work even comes before that, just digging up the soil of our hearts. And so we can't even get to the point of saying Jesus is Lord without the work of the Spirit's. Then we get to another verse, Romans 8, verses 9. If anyone does not have the spirits of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. Let let me kind of look at the mirror image of this verse. If anyone does have the spirits of Christ, they do belong to Christ. In other words, those who belong to Christ have the spirits of Christ. Those who do not have the spirits of Christ do not belong to Christ. Can you see that crystal clear logic? In other words, there is no such thing as someone who belongs to Christ but does not have the spirits of Christ. Or, new ages, there's no such thing as having the spirits of Christ without belonging to Christ. Those two are hand in hand. So once again, as we recognize Jesus as Lord, surrender to Jesus as Lord, from that moment, our identity is that I belong to Christ. And from that very first nanosecond, I have the spirits of Christ. One more verse that says pretty much the same thing. Titus 3 verses 4 to 7. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. It's the beginning of the story of faith. He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us. Beginning of the story, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit involved in our salvation, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. When was the Spirit poured out generously on us? At the moment of our salvation. So that having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs of the hope of eternal life. That's the reward, the outcome of our life of faith. So, you might say, well, Stephen, this seems pretty clear. Where does debate, the debate lie? Well, the debate lies around a number of terms that we haven't really used yet, and we're going to look at in a second. And it is a term some of you may have heard about, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and or the filling of the Holy Spirit. And is the baptism the same as the filling, or are they two different things? Now, some very large and very influential churches would argue that when we get saved, we receive the Spirit in some almost dormant sense. And what needs to happen in our life is a secondary experience with God. Some might call it a second blessing or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. A second moment where kind of the lights go on, where whatever is there is set ablaze in our hearts. Now, like with all things, there's always going to be a lot of truth in this. But where does this come from? Let's go straight to the Scriptures and speak about this. The first time it's mentioned in the book of Acts is Jesus has uh, risen from the dead. He's about to ascend into heaven. He's meeting with His disciples and He says, 
do not leave Jerusalem. Once I've gone, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift. The Spirit is a gift. It is a good gift for those of you who are afraid of the Spirit. It is a gift from a good Father. But wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So, Jesus is promising, I'm going to ascend to heaven. You're going to wait for me in Jerusalem, and then something is going to happen. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, here is where I think, and I never do this unnecessarily, here's where I think we need a little lesson in Greek, because the New Testament was written in Greek. And here's the thing, when you and I, and maybe even your non-believing neighbors or neighbors from different religions, when we hear the word baptized, immediately we think, oh, that's a religious word. That's a Christian word, loaded with all sorts of religious connotations, whatever those connotations are, depending on the background that you came from. But when we go to the time of the New Testament, the word baptized in Greek is baptizo. It's not a religious word. It's just a, it's just a Greek word. It's not preloaded with a whole lot of assumptions. So for example, the word is used to describe when Jesus dips his bread in the wine, the Last Supper, he baptizes bread in the wine. There's not like sacred ceremony in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's just, it's a word that literally means to soak to immerse, and so the word baptize in Greek can be used to describe if you want to dye a t-shirt, you baptize the t-shirt in that liquid, in that dye. They've even found recipes for cucumber pickles from this time. Make the pickling liquid and baptize the pickle in the pickling liquid. It's just a descriptive word. So now if we import that understanding Okay, I'm going to be baptized by the Spirit. What does that mean? I'm somehow going to become soaked with the Spirit, immersed into the Spirit. I'm going to be saturated with the Spirit. And so I hope that as we hear this word, we think through what this word means. Then we get to a chapter later where we see at Pentecost the fulfillment of this promise. Acts 2 verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all the disciples were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. Remember the Hebrew lesson. Sorry, guys, this is like you know, theological lectures 101, but remember the Hebrew lesson. Ruach, spirits, breath, and wind. How often do we see the activity of God's Spirit accompanied by wind? So this violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They also saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. How often was there fire with God's presence? Mount Sinai, the burning bush, the dedication of the tabernacle and the temple, there was fire. There seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. This is the moment the Old Testament has been leading up to. That 
where the empowering presence of God's Spirit was for a few select chosen individuals. Remember the whole story, Ezekiel 37, the value of dry bones. One day God's going to breathe His presence, not only into one or two key individuals, but all of God's people. This is that. All right, this is when God's Spirit comes down and this day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, is the birth day of the church. And so this is how the argument goes. The argument goes, well, clearly Jesus' disciples weren't saved on this day. They were already saved. Not only because they were walking with Christ, because you know, there's some really embarrassing, bumbling moments but also because we see these profound recognitions of who Jesus is. We looked at Matthew 16, 16 last week where, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. If ever there's a statement of faith, that's it. And we saw John 20, 20 where Jesus kind of cryptically breathes onto his disciples. So we know that at some point the disciples were already saved, but here is a subsequent moment of empowering or a subsequent experience of being filled with or baptized by God's Spirit. And then we go further, because that maybe seems pretty compelling, where we look at some of the other stories in the book of Acts, which at first glance seem to follow the same kind of pattern. And so the argument goes, if we look at these stories, we have faith followed by a gap, and only subsequently followed by a baptism in the spirits or a filling of the spirit. Now, I hope some of you are recognizing a bit of a tension here. Stephen, we just looked at 1 Corinthians 12 verses 3. We've just looked at Ephesians 1 verses 13. That all seem to describe the spirit coming to us in our fullness at salvation. What's going on here? Hold on to that question. You see, if we are to come to a right understanding of anything in Scripture, and while we need to go way beyond simply understanding, we do have to do an understanding. What does God say about any one topic? The way I usually put it is, regardless of whether you're talking about the prayer, salvation, the Holy Spirit, or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, what we need to do is put it all on the table. In other words, not just a few hand-selected verses, but all the verses pertaining to this, put it all on the table, and then let me kind of just step back with some of my preloaded assumptions. Now what can I learn now that it's all on the table? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to put it all on the table. And so the first thing we've got on the table here is a story in Acts 2. There's three others. We just don't have time to get stuck into the details of them. But we've got the Sumerians in Acts 8, the Gentiles, so the Samaritans in Acts 8, the Gentiles in Acts 10, and the disciples of John the Baptist in Acts 19. And at first glance, it seems to agree with this idea that faith comes first, followed by a subsequent powerful experience of God's Spirit, often accompanied by speaking in tongues, which seems pretty compelling. But here are a few more thoughts we need to think about. When we actually look at those passages, what we see is no real pattern. In Acts 2, they receive the Spirit and speak in tongues. In Acts 8, they're baptized with water, hands are laid on them, and then they receive the Spirit. Acts 10, 
They received the Spirit, spoke with tongues, baptized with water. Acts 19, they baptized with water, hands are laid in them. They received the Spirit and spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, Stephen, I didn't get all of that. All to say that there really isn't a pattern that now every single Christian needs to hold to from this point onwards. That's thought number one. Thought number two is, if I point to these four stories, it may seem like there's this appearance of faith followed by a subsequent blessing of God's Spirit. However, in the book of Acts, these aren't the only stories of powerful conversions. In fact, in the book of Acts, there are at least 10 stories of powerful, genuine, life-changing, transformative conversions of people coming to faith in Christ. Out of those 10, only three seem to have that, that structure that we spoke about. And so you're left with a choice. Either we say, oh, well, I really want to believe in this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So those three stories, because remember the disciples were already Christians, so they're not a conversion story. These three stories are the only genuine stories. The other seven don't count. Or you have to say, all 10 stories are powerful works of God's Spirit. All 10 stories are powerful stories of changed lives, changed cities. And what I haven't included in these 10 stories are when the book of Acts just sometimes simply says, and the Lord continued to add to their number. We don't know the details, but just the church growing, God's Spirit powerfully at work. Let's put something else on the table. Even if we only look at the book of Acts, what we see when we line up all of these moments concerning God's Spirit, what we see is, Flexible language is being used. So, Acts 1.5, Jesus says, you'll be baptized with the Spirit. Acts 1.8, He says, when the Spirit comes on you. Acts 2.4, talks about them being filled with the Spirit. Acts 8, talks about them receiving the Spirit. Acts 9, filled with the Spirit. Acts 10, came on the, uh, the Spirit came on them, was poured out on them. They received the Spirit. Acts 11, talks about the Spirit coming on them, being baptized by the Spirit. And Acts 19, talks about the Spirit coming on them. In other words, there's not a single airtight concept. Rather, there are different words being used to describe what God's Spirit is actually doing and Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is quite comfortable using different terms as opposed to one term. Thought number four we're going to put on the table is this, okay? Some of you did the, the Bible Read Equip module in your life groups last year. And you would know that the Bible isn't just one type of literature. It is multiple types of literature. And so the book of Acts is what is known as, it's a historical record of what happened and some of you may remember, there's a difference between events that are simply relayed, that are descriptive. In other words, we are describing what happened. There's a difference between those kinds of stories and prescriptive stories, where here's what happened, but here is what needs to happen to you as well. It's not just true of these people, but you as well. How do we know the difference the way we know the difference is we go to other parts of the Scripture. What do the letters, for example, say? Where Paul is writing to churches to do what? To teach churches. So 
where does the baptism of the Holy Spirit come up where Paul is writing to churches to teach churches? And it kind of only half comes up in one place, 1 Corinthians 12 verses 13, which says this, For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body. Here's what you need to know about 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is not trying to draw a line in the sand. Here's what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. Most, well, many of you would know that 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is this beautiful chapter on the unity of the church. The unity of the church known as the body of Christ. And we are all included in the body of Christ. And we all have different functions. And the Spirit gives us those functions and empowers us for those functions. In other words, what Paul isn't doing in this verse is saying, well, some of you were baptized by the Holy Spirit. You got the second blessing. You're the real deal. Then there's another part of the church that haven't had it yet. Sorry for them. They'll catch up later. In other words, he's not dividing the church's perspective on this. Rather, he is uniting the church's perspective on this. He's trying to say to the whole church, listen, you were all included in Christ. You were all, to use this language, baptized by the Holy Spirit. In other words, you all received the Holy Spirit. And just like you all received the Holy Spirit, every single one of you, now you're all part of the body of Christ. And so Paul's argument here is a unifying argument rather than a dividing argument. And the final thing we're going to put on the table maybe has more to do with the continuation of the life of the Spirit, and that is Ephesians 5.18, which speaks about the filling of the Holy Spirit. Where Paul says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now this word, be filled, is passive, present, continuous. Meaning passive, you can't fill yourself with God's Spirit. So you need to somehow position yourself for God to do the filling. But it's also present continuous, meaning it's not just happening once in your lifetime, maybe at your point of salvation or maybe a subsequent powerful moment in your lives. Rather, this idea of being filled with God's Spirit needs to be something that we are always pushing into, right? That's what Ephesians 5.18 is about. Now, I'm aware that maybe I've lost some of you. And before you fall asleep, because this just sounds like a theological lecture, let's try to bring this together. What thoughts can we hold on to, even if I forget most of what Steve said? As we look at everything on the table, and... and Honestly, I have filtered some out just because we don't have the time. What can we hold on to? So here are some thoughts from everything we've looked at. Thought number one is, I believe it is clear from all these passages that the Spirit is given to all at conversion. No one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. As we believe, having heard the gospel of our salvation, we're sealed with God's Spirit. And so whether you're a brand new Christian or whether you're a Christian of 50 years, you have God's spirits. Number two, we need to subsequently live in a renewable relationship with God's spirits. Maybe a renewing 
relationship with God's Spirit. Now, here's where I think our own finite understanding and maybe even our own English language fails us a little bit. Because if we think about the concept of fullness, well, in our mind, what is the opposite of fullness? Emptiness. So we hear words like filled with God's Spirit, and the first thing that at least comes to my mind is like a cup filled with water. And then we think about being the opposite of that. Well, what does that mean? Well, empty of God's Spirit. But then you run into a bit of a problem. How can we have God's Spirit that is given to me once and for all, and yet at moments be filled with God's Spirit, and at other times be, using this language, empty of God's Spirit? So I had all sorts of ideas to get up here, this plastic container that was see-through and stick cups of water in there and just try and illustrate this. And then I realized that that all falls apart, leading us to maybe a wrongful thinking about what it means to be filled with God's Spirit. And so in this idea, I intentionally included the idea of a relationship with God's Spirit. And I think the idea of relationship is the best metaphor to hold on to. It's probably not perfect, but maybe it's better than the others. And I'll explain why. Some of you may know what it means to be in a relationship with someone, be it a friendship or be it a marriage or a parent-child relationship where you are living in the same place. Let's just for argument's sake, think about a marriage. You're in the same house. You're maybe even in the same bed, but there's no fullness of relationship. What do we mean by that? Well, yeah, I'm married. There's a piece of paper, number one, that says it. And as far as I know, that's going to go on until, you know, one of us passes away and death does us part. And so this person is here in their fullness, but there's no fullness in relationship. And what we mean by that is there's no sense of giving and receiving. There's no sense of sharing love. There's no sense of knowing one another at deeper and deeper levels. And the sad truth is that can describe some of our relationship with God's Spirit. Where He is there, but we're not experiencing fullness with Him. There's no desire. There's no ability to give love and to receive love. There's no intimacy. In fact, there's no relationship. However, in relationships, if we want to change the narrative, what do we start doing? We start relating. We start taking down the walls. We start getting vulnerable. We start sharing what's really going on. We start learning how to give love. We start learning how to receive love to the point where some of us might describe the relationship now as there is fullness in our relationship. I'm experiencing the full benefit of being in a beautiful, life-giving relationship with this person. And I believe that is what God has in mind for us as we relate to God's spirits. That we learn how to love God. We learn how to receive love from God. We learn how to open up our hearts to God, become vulnerable with God, and live in this life-giving, ongoing relationship. And just like any relationship, we don't just say, well, I got married 40 years ago, job done. 
In the same way as Christians, we don't just say, well, I got saved, the Spirit moved in, job done. Rather, we live in a renewable, renewing, ongoing, being filled. And remember, baptized and filled, pretty much tomato, tomato, the same thing with God's Spirit. Now, some of you may have experienced relational moments where there's maybe been a struggle in the relationship. There's been an obstacle or there's been a sin that has broken the relationship. Maybe not the marriage, but the sense of fullness. Or maybe for whatever reason, you've just been trying to live out this relationship, but you feel handicapped. I just, I don't know how to give love and I don't know how to receive love. I don't know how to live in fullness with you. And then what happens is you, you go to the journey or you go for some counseling or God just does a miraculous work in your life and in your relationship. And all of a sudden, the person who has always been there in their fullness you are able to relate to them and enjoy the fullness of relationship in a new way. And if you've ever experienced that in relationship, you will know that that can be deeply emotional. As whatever you've been missing out on and as the brokenness flows away, you suddenly knowing and experiencing love and the joy of this person's presence. And in the same way, I believe there are moments in our life, and this is what I think is behind this language, being baptized or soaked or immersed with God's spirits, where God does something in me. God heals something in me. God frees me from some sin. God unlocks new spaces in who I am, in my identity that allows me to love Him more, trust Him more, receive His love more, and enjoy the fullness of His presence to greater degrees. And just like any relationship will be always changed by those kinds of moments, so our relationship with God's Spirit can be changed by these moments. These moments so often can also be so deeply emotional. They don't have to be emotional, but they can be, and they often are. As I'm freed from something and just, I get so overwhelmed with the sense of God's love and God's presence. And, so, and now I'm able to access somehow more of God's love and presence, and therefore, often these moments are very empowering moments. John Wesley describes this. He talks about how, you know, he was acting as a bit of a missionary in, in North America and he was preaching and preaching and preaching and preaching and nothing was happening. On his way back to the UK, he was on a ship. The ship got into a bit of a storm and there was this Moravian group of Christians who were just worshiping the Lord in the storm and he thought to himself, why don't I have what they've got? And then he felt his heart strangely warmed. That was his experience. And somehow, from that moment onwards, he knew God in a deeper way. Not that God wasn't there, but something shifted in him. And all of a sudden, there was greater power and fruit in his ministry. And so I believe the context of relationship makes the most sense to us. In fact, I think one of the best descriptions of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I forget the pastor who kind of told the story, but he talks about he was walking down the street and in front of him, you maybe have heard this before, he saw a father and son walking. 
No, you know, father, son, there's a fixed relationship of love there. And for whatever reason, at some point, the father just stops, picks up his son, just throws his arms around his son, says, son, I love you. Puts the son back down on the ground and carries on walking. You see, the son went from, I know my dad, to I know my father's love. My father's love has filled me and has saturated me. And what God wants for you is not for you to fight about when this happens, but to desire that it happens. Because as I so often say here, there is always more of God to know. Even the Apostle Paul says, not that I've achieved all of these things. How much more do we need to push in to God's spirits? A few more quick thoughts before we move to a time of prayer and ministry. I believe looking at all those terms, even in the book of Acts alone, I believe that these words trying to describe what's going on are descriptive terms, not technical terms. Jesus says you're going to be baptized with the Spirit. Acts 2 says they were filled with God's Spirit. Luke found that he could be flexible with his language. He could look at filled with, baptized with, tomato, tomato. All he's describing is this moment of a greater sense of God's Spirit, a greater sense of God's empowering. And if we try and understand these words and move them too far apart, I believe we actually lose something. Here's something else. The Bible never refers to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's a noun. We've made up this thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit to fight about. Rather, the Scriptures always use it in verb form. They were baptized by God's Spirit. In Greek, they were baptizo by God's Spirit. I don't know what the right term is there. Maybe my dad can help me with that. In other words, they were saturated. They were filled with. The Spirit came upon them. This language of anointing, this language of water, tomato, tomato. And then finally, I believe, connecting to this renewable life. This is a dynamic relationship. This is a dynamic reality, meaning if you happen to be of the more, the stance of, well, I got saved, I received God's Spirit, done and dusted. And even if you're more of the camp of, well, Stephen, I've heard you, but I still believe there has to be, all Christians has to have a subsequent experience of the Holy Spirit. Oh, when did that happen to you? In the 80s. God doesn't want you to point back to the 80s. The question is, today, do you want to be filled with God's Spirit? Today, do you want more of God? If Paul can say, not that I've achieved all of this, I've got a way to go. I don't care who you are, how many books you've written, how many theological degrees you have, how long you've been a Christian, how good of a Christian you believe you are, there is always more of God to know. There is always more of God's Spirit to be filled with. And so that is the question before every single one of us, which brings me back to my FOMO, that we miss that.
just to read in conclusion one of the theologians that just speaks so well on God's Spirit. Gordon Fee, he says this, Paul does not see life in the Spirit as the result of a single experience of the Spirit at the entry point. He simply did not have the static view of the Spirit that so many later Christians seem to have. That the Spirit is given once for all at conversion, and after that, we are pretty much left to our own devices to live out the Christian life. For Paul, the Spirit is the key to all of Christian life. And he implies frequently there are further ongoing times of receiving the Spirit's empowering. Maybe at this stage, if I could ask, was Dulls, Amanda, if you could come up. Let me bring the question back to you. Today, today, is your heart stirred? Today, is there a yearning for more of God? This is why maybe some of you, and I know this is kind of a new space for us as a church, and, and maybe some of you, you feel uncomfortable. Oh, Stephen, we did this last week, and we did it the week before. Aren't we done now? No, we're not done. We can't just be hearers of the Word. We have to put the Word into practice. And if God says, I want to give you more of me, we are going to create space for God to give us more of Him. And we're going to actually do it because I know what happens if you're going to do it on your own. You go home, have lunch, have a nap, wake up, go to work, forget all about it. Do you want more of God's love? God's empowering? Do you want a greater sense of God's invasion in your life, in the dry places, in the broken places? Are you willing to unclench your fists and the stop signs and the brakes? We're not talking about chasing an experience, even though it can be emotional. We're talking about chasing God's presence. Are you willing to surrender to Him? And this is why over the last few weeks and even in the weeks to come, I don't know if that's going to mean you stay away. I hope it means you come back. We are providing weekly opportunities for us to come to God. See, some of us need to hear it a few times. Some of our hearts, it's like God's got a chisel and He's needing to chip away at our hearts week on week on week on week until eventually we do get to a point of surrender. So many of us have experienced the wonder of God's presence. Maybe we can experience it anew today. Maybe some of us can experience it for the first time. Maybe there are some of us here this morning or who are watching online for whom this is the entry point moment. For whatever reason, God is calling at your heart right now. And you're saying, Stephen, I don't know about this Christian debate you're talking about. I just want to get in on the story. And so for you, it's about a primary moment of seeing, recognizing, and surrendering to Jesus as Lord and trusting that God gives you His presence with great generosity. So I'm going to ask if we can all stand.
Jesus, last week we heard about all you who are thirsty, come to me and drink. Jesus, we are thirsty again today. Jesus, you are the giver of your presence, of the Spirit. And God, I'm just hoping that we have become convinced at a heart and a mind level that we need to do this life with your Spirit. We can't afford it any other way. And maybe I'm afraid, and for some of us, we just need to use this opportunity to confess our fears. And just the quietness of this moment, Lord, I've been afraid of dot, dot, dot. I'm afraid of the vulnerability. I'm afraid of letting go of some of my sin. I'm afraid of feeling exposed. Some of us are quite frankly afraid of love. We just don't know how to be loved. Lord, I'm afraid I don't want to become one of these crazy Christians. Just put that aside. That's not the question before us. Do you want more of the gifts from the Father? So some of us are confessing our fears. Let's also learn to express our desire. See, church, one of the things I've been saying to our life groups in the weekly videos that we get is, God wants us to really, really, really want this. It's a desire of ours that we have to choose. So maybe using the words of your heart, God, I choose you. I desire you. And maybe I'm even confused by, I don't know, some of the language, some of the debate, but boiled right down, I want more of you. Your presence, your power, your love. 